Well, good morning, everybody. You're very welcome this morning, and uh, I've been wandering about in an PC along with his wife, Claire, and baby Eamon, who's sleeping nicely there at the back. You're very, very welcome. Uh, Kevin is an elder in Lucan Presbyterian Church, and he is a theologian working with, in the area of social justice with the Jesuit community. He is a candidate for the Presbyterian Church Ministry, and he is here to complete his accredited preacher's scheme. So he will be with us on three occasions, uh, this being the first. Kevin, it is lovely to have you. You're very welcome. And we look forward to um, yeah, just getting to know you and Claire and Eamon a little bit better and uh, all that you would have to say to us uh, later on. I will come and do the announcements in the middle. Uh, so I, I was thinking, I'll send to Kevin, we might have a bigger congregation at that point. But we'll wait and see. But you're very welcome, Kevin, and God bless. Thank you very much, Sam. And thank you all for, uh, for having me and for welcoming me here. It's a, a real joy. I was actually in Adelaide Road once before, but it was many years ago. So it's great to be back again and to see the community still thriving and flourishing. As we begin our worship, I'd like to uh, start in prayer. Let us pray together. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first song this morning is Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. It's number 227 in the hymn book, uh, but the words will be up on the, the screens here. And just to say, the third verse is uh, for the women only. So the men are to turn the volume down for once in their lives, and uh, we let the, the women take the lead on at the third verse. So this is Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Proclaims, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let us join our voices to all the Christians meeting around the, the world this morning in prayer by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue our worship uh, by reading from the scriptures. Uh, the the, uh, uh, the passage that I'm preaching on this morning is a parable. Uh, it's a, one of the kind of mid-table parables, not one of the super famous ones like the parable of the prodigal sons or the good Samaritan. It's the parable of the foolish farmer or the rich fool. And it's in Luke chapter 12, it's on page 1044. It's on 1045 of the Pew Bibles. So we're starting from verse 13 in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus says, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. And this is the gospel of the Lord. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to invite any of the kids who wanted to come up to the front. I wanted to talk about how God thinks about the world and thinks about us. Let's see if this works now. 
Aaron showed me how to do this, but okay. Are we working? No? I, c I can work from here. All right. Thank you very much. And do we have uh, slides? Hopefully we'll overcome our technical difficulties. There we go, w wonderful. Okay, um, so have any of the kids um, ever seen the movie Avengers or any of the Avenger movies? Yeah? Is everybody familiar with the Avenger films? Right, I watched the, there we go. Oh my, now we're working, okay? Right, so I watched this Infinity War movie and it went on. And on and on. It was like three and a half hours long. But the Avengers are a big team of superheroes, right? So what I want to do this morning is imagine uh, we have to put together a superhero team to fight the most evil of all the foes in all of the world. Okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to, we've got a whole, whole bunch of job applications in for places on our team. And we're going to select who we're going to have on our team. Okay? So we've got this great big enemy that we have to defeat like Thanos. Did I get that right? Yeah, he's the, the uh, Avengers opponent. So first of all, we need a team leader, somebody who can offer people, uh, our people supplies and transport and protection, okay? And we've got two candidates in for this job. Two CVs have arrived. The first one is this guy. Does anyone know who he is? He's the richest man in the world. Jeff Bezos. I shouldn't be too mean about him because for all I know you work for Amazon. But he's the richest man in the world. As you can see, he now has lots of muscles. He used to look like me, but then he got rich and suddenly became a kind of superhero, supervillain himself. And he, because he's so rich and well-connected, he knows lots of important people. He has houses all over the world. He has lots of money. So presumably he can offer us some good protection, right? Let's think about him. The alternative was this guy. He's middle-aged, he's from the Middle East, he doesn't have any real education, but he's a very good carpenter. That's really all that he's got on his CV. So we can have Bezos, or we can have a middle-aged carpenter, okay? Let's not make our decisions just yet. Next, we need a spokesperson, right? We need somebody who can communicate our, our plan and explain our strategy to people, all right? And we've got two CVs in, and I'm very excited about this one. Who's he? Barack Obama, he uh, was a professor of law at Harvard University. He held some kind of job in the American Civil Service for eight years. I don't know how well he did at that, but we can talk about that over coffee. And uh, he is arguably one of the world's finest public speakers. So he'd be a good spokesperson, right? Yeah? And then we got an application from this person here, whose name is Sarah. And she lives in a refugee camp in Syria, run by the Jesuits. And she's only just been able to go to school in the last year, because for all of the previous years that she should have been at school, there was a war in her country. So she's just learning how to read. And all that she really has in her favor is that she has listened very carefully to all the wisdom and all the stories that older people in her life have told her. OK? So we need a spokesperson. Are we going to take the guy who is really good at speaking in public? Or are we going to take a teenager who hasn't even finished school? OK? Think about it. Our last job is we need a champion. We need an Iron Man and a Captain America and a uh, Spider-Man all rolled into one. We need someone who can actually go into battle against our enemy and defeat them. OK? So we have two CVs in for this job as well. The first is this guy. Conor McGregor. Don't be mean about Conor because he's from where Claire and I live. So for all you know, we could send him around to teach you guys a lesson. So Conor is, what does he do? He fights. He's a very good fighter, right? Yeah. I, from what I understand, uh, I'm not a big fan of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But from what I hear, he's a good guy at beating other people up. Whether or not that's a great skill that we ought to endorse, let's leave that to the side. So we have Conor as a possible a hero to go into battle against our enemy. Yeah? Sounds good. Or we have this guy. Yeah, he's two weeks old. Um, he's not able to do anything really except sleep, cry, and suck. That's he can also go to the toilet, which he does six, 10, 15 times a day. Right? Uh, he can't sit up on his own. He can't control his limbs. He doesn't know how to speak, can't take any instruction. Who do we want to put into the battle against our vicious enemy? OK? So we have, if you're like me, you're going to choose Jeff Bezos, 
the richest guy in the world, to offer you protection. You're going to choose Barack Obama to be your spokesperson. Yeah, definitely. We've got a very enthusiastic guy in the front. <laughs> and we choose Conor McGregor to go into battle against our enemy. Yes? Do we, does everybody agree with my human resources decisions? Yeah. Great. Because that is not who God picks. When God had to decide who he was going to put into battle against his great enemy, he chose a middle-aged carpenter, a teenage girl who probably wasn't really able to do much of anything at all, and, most remarkably of all, a tiny little baby. Now, I think that this is very important for us to recognize, because in this world, the overwhelming message you get all the time is that you have to be the best you can possibly be. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are not the best, if you are middle-aged and you're not entirely sure what you're doing with your life, or if you're a teenage girl and nobody really respects you, or even we've got lots of little babies in this room, if you're a little baby, God already has a plan for you. You already have a part to play in his mission. And when you think about the Christmas story that we've just finished, there's all kinds of different people who feature in it. A really old man features in a very important role. An old woman features in a very important role. But no super rich person features. No wonderful spokesperson features. No great battle fighter features. God picks ordinary people. And I think that that's very encouraging for us. You know the Christmas story because we've just finished it. After hundreds of years of waiting, when Israel's long-awaited Messiah came, the shepherds heard the most remarkable news of all. Not that you were going to find a great genius law professor or a great billionaire inventor or that you were going to find Conor McGregor and he'd lead you into battle. Instead, the angel said, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So that proves to me that whatever else Christianity is about, it's about the fact that God, his strength is displayed in our weakness. So you don't have to pretend to be the best. If you're not the best, you're still number one for God. So with that in mind, let's pray, okay? Let's pray that we would really take that to heart and know that God has a part for us to play in his mission right now, regardless of who we are or what we're able to do or how other people view us. Let's pray. God, you make choices very differently from us. We judge based on the outside, on what we can see. You also judge on what you can see, but you can see inside of things, into the heart of things. Your decisions are wise and trustworthy. And through the scriptures, we see again and again that you pick people that we wouldn't pick. And that should be a great encouragement to us because you have picked us. Lord, regardless of whether we, were, we are tiny and small or whether we were, are big and strong, whether we are very poor and have no money or whether we're the richest person in this room, Lord, you have a part for us to play. This week, through your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would show us what it means to be your follower right here where we live. Amen. So we continue our worship with a song that the kids are going to lead us in. It's called Jesus is Greater Than the Greatest Heroes. Okay, so let's sing together. Thank you very much. Um, there, uh, the kids can go out to um, Sunday Special and to K2, which, are up, which is upstairs. And if you should need it, uh, there's a creche downstairs for any little ones under the age of three, although they're also very welcome to stay with us here in the service. And at this point, I get to hand back to the boss who's going to share the announcements. Very good, thank you. Well, it's good to know that there's hope for middle-aged men like me, you know, uh, which is great. Uh, you're very welcome to the service, and uh, again, just to welcome Kevin if you weren't in at the start. If you have this little order of service, I'm going to go through these announcements and uh, call for your undivided attention. Uh, so next Sunday, we begin a series in 1 Corinthians. Um, and I'm going to do an introduction. If you want to read about that, you can look at... Uh, Paul's journey to Corinth in uh, Acts chapter 18, and also read a, a couple of the first chapters as well. But we'll be looking at this. If you, um, there's also the uh, preaching schedule, the purple sheet. There's a letter inside of that that'll explain why I'm doing 1 Corinthians this term. If you have come and there's something on your mind that you would, uh, and in your heart that you would like to pray for, for yourself or for someone else, 
then do come to this little table and uh, people will be here who will just confidentially pray uh, with you um, and uh, yeah, just bring that to God because we believe that he cares. Uh, Kirk Session meets this Tuesday. Do pray for us as we consider the work of the church. Uh, then the World Development Appeal, which this year was for uh, a Brazilian uh, safe house, um, uh, where uh, for, for those who were involved in, in violence uh, can go, uh, we, we raised 7,275. That uh, seems to be very good, and I want to thank you for your generosity in that. Now, next week, uh, we have our church family breakfast. Um, uh, you see that it's at 9.30, so if you come at uh, 10 to 11 or 11 or 5 past 11, then you're too late. Um, we want you to come nice and early at 9.30 uh, for a really good breakfast and a chance to sit down and have a chat. And I suppose the one thing that was in my mind, um, we're quite good at sitting with our friends in Adelaide Road. We have certain groups that we know well. Uh, why don't we come and make a, a determined effort to get to know someone different uh, and at least even for a short while uh, say hello to them as well um, and I guess invite people as well uh, who maybe that you know and maybe been before family members or whatever just invite them to come as well everybody is welcome. Uh, child protection training um, anyone who's involved in the leadership of children in the church uh, are invited to come on Monday the 21st of January uh, here uh, in the second floor uh, between 7.30 and 9 p.m. So uh, I think everybody uh, who is involved has been told about that. If you are, um, you know, if, if you might in the future be involved in child and youth ministries and you're thinking about that or if you've asked, been asked about that, uh, then you can come as well. And if you want to know more about it, talk to Karen Thompson. Uh, who's away with uh, the Sunday special there. Living Well um, is planned for Friday the 1st of February. It's good to have Alan and Heather back with us now, and uh, if you want to find out more from them, you can chat to them as well. Um, International Cafe, um, just skipping through, Salt Project met, met yesterday. Um, we've moved the date of the start of this to the 1st of February. Uh, we will have a meeting um, I should have had that in, actually, um, on the 29th, I think, the Sunday before uh, that, um, yeah, 20, what's that, the 27th or whatever it is, 20, 27th, yeah, we'll have a meeting on the 27th. Um, and I suppose I just wanted to take this time to say to you that Annie remains unwell. Uh, sadly, she still remains in hospital. Uh, she's not really improving a great deal. Uh, we really can say that she's holding her own. Um, and we do need to continue to pray for her because this has been a very long time where she hasn't really been making much progress. And I want to, um, we've just uh, been amazed, I think, about how much Annie actually does in this church. Um, and it's taking at least three of us to do the work that she does on International Cafe just to get it up and running as well. Folks, over the page, and I did want to speak to this and really encourage you uh, to be involved in this. Uh, we have signed up to do an RTE television service again. Um, I have to be honest that this scares me really a lot, uh, particularly now, because you have to choose a theme. You have to write it out word for word. You have to try and think of creative ideas. Um, I might talk to Kevin because he seems to have lots of good creative ideas, but it scares me, and I don't naturally want to do this. Every time it comes up, I say to myself, why are we doing this? Why would I put my name forward for this? Why would I put your name forward? And the reason I do that is because we're the closest to RTE, and we're one of the biggest congregations, I suppose, in the Presbyterian denomination in and around this area. So I think we have a responsibility to do it, and God has always used us, and it has always been a great experience as well. So I don't do it lightly. Um, and we, you can see that we're up for recording on the 17th of February. Uh, they say it takes between half one and 6 p.m., but if we're well organized, we should be out of there by half four or five o'clock. I think that's the longest period that they book the studios for in that way. It's an all-age service. I put a sign-up sheet in the, um, the porch, um, and so anybody of any age can go. If, the, if your children are going, uh, which I want to encourage as well, then uh, you have to sign um, a parental form, which I can get to you before the time. 
But I've put 56 uh, slots down there. That's the maximum that we can have. Um, we need at least um, 56. Um, so let's see if you can get everybody signed up for this. So, yeah, I mean, just you don't have to have any particular gift. You don't have to look well. You don't have to have muscles. You don't have to have anything like it other than that you want to be there and to serve God and to be part of the congregation. And we get fed, and they look after us well, and it's usually a good experience to see what's going on. So I think I will preach uh, and talk on Psalm 139 and the implications of God's care and security of us. That's really where I think I'm going in that, but I haven't uh, decided that yet. So I think that's really what I want you to do. You see the sign-up sheet. Please sign it, um, and please encourage us all as we think about that as well. And it's back to Kevin. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Uh, we continue our worship uh, with the song, Here I Am to Worship. Sam is uh, one of the rarest people. Uh, he's actually taken time to read a book I published a few months ago. The book is called, wait for it, I mean, why am I telling you this? You guys all have like many copies and you're giving it to your friends because it's the runaway bestseller. The book is called Theological Ethics in the Neoliberal Age. <laughs> you can imagine it's not a you know, poolside vacation book. And Sam not only came along to my book launch, which was a great encouragement to me, but he, he bought a copy of the book and then he, he carefully read it. And uh, that's a really great honor when somebody takes the time to do that. And when I met with him before coming this morning, he said, I'd really like for you to talk about these themes that you've spent the last few years working on, which are around wealth. The subtitle of the book is Confronting the Christian Problem with Wealth. I'd wanted the book to be called Can a Celtic Tiger Fit Through the Eye of a Needle, which I think is a much better title, but the publisher is American, and they didn't know what the Celtic Tiger was, and they thought that really the theological libraries of the world will, will want the formal title. So I started thinking about wealth seriously um, maybe 10 years ago. I was working in the church plant in Maynooth, and members of the congregation there came to me and asked me, how do we reconcile our commitment to Jesus with our increasingly comfortable and prosperous lifestyles? Because when you read the Gospels with your eyes open, it's very quickly evident that Jesus has a problem with wealth. And the problem only intensifies through the rest of the New Testament. Initially, I tried to minimize the problem. And then I tried to relativize the problem. And then eventually, I recognized that what they were saying about the, the New Testament was accurate. If we can't serve both God and mammon, why is it that we spend so much of our lives serving mammon? So I've spent the last five years of my life on this project. Claire very graciously left a job that she loved to move to Aberdeen, which is much too close to the Arctic Circle for <laughs> anyone to want to go there. And I did a PhD and spent all of my time reading about how Christians down through the millennia have dealt with this problem. And then the Jesuits, of all people, gave me a job to think about these things in relation to Irish government policy. And now I've written this book with this preposterous title, and Sam has carefully taken the time to read it, and this is now what I do. I go around and I try to help as best I can Christians to at least start to frame this. I've got no answers. Let me be clear right at the beginning. I'm not selling you anything. Uh, but we can at least try to frame and bring into focus some of the tensions that exist between what Jesus says and what we believe about Jesus' words. We trust them. And yet our lives are not fully in line in a way that's elegant and in a way that fits, and we're stressed out about money, and we spend way too much time working, and we exhaust ourselves, and we put ourselves in an early grave trying to get a little bit more. And yet, at the same time, we trust that Jesus is the provider of all the good things. So how do we bring these, these various tensions into focus? So I'm going to be preaching here three times over the next three months, and it's just this morning I'm going to talk about wealth. I'll go back to much safer territory in week, uh, week two and week three. And I think that the best way to begin this is with a story about, um, about a rat. Uh, a rat in India. Um, I don't know if you encountered this story, but in May last year, an ATM in the branch of the State Bank in India, of India in the city of Tainuskia, I apologize in advance for butchering the name of the city, uh, the ATM started to malfunction. 
and eventually some technicians got out to check up on the ATM and they found what the problem was. Somehow a rat had found its way inside the machine, built a nest, and then eaten what was available, which was 1.3 million rupees, which is about 20,000 euros. Shredded, gone entirely. So not only was the money gone, but you can't live on money. And the rat died. So I think that this is an amazing, like this is an amazing real life parable for all of our lives. We do the best we can to make a nest as close as we can to the source of money, and then we gorge on it. And eventually, sadly, it kills us. I don't want to suggest that you and I are rats, but I do want to suggest that we live in a society that has gone crazy over money. We have a collective culture that is irrational in its desire for more. And that hunger for more, never having enough, is pushing all of us as individuals and as a species towards death. We live in the opening stages of climate breakdown, which is brought about by our ceaseless productivity. We are seeing an unparalleled rise across the Western world in chronic anxiety, in depression, in burnout, in despair, as people face the meaninglessness of constantly having to compete to stay in the same place. We know in our bones that even though we are wealthier than any generation in all of history, there is a profound sense in which we are living impoverished lives. What are we to make of all this? I'm convinced that the parables of Jesus, these divine yarns, these short stories that Jesus told, are actually divine wisdom that can help us out of this problem. Half of the parables deal with money and wealth. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And for those of us who are weary and heavy burdened by the constant need to make ends meet, Jesus says, there's rest for you. The gospel applies to all of our life. So before we look at Luke chapter 12 in closer detail, I want to begin by asking you to pray for me so that we together would actually hear good news from this text. So let's pray together. Lord, your parables tease us into thinking new thoughts. They never arrive at these clear and settled, boring, Marvel superhero kind of morals. There's always another angle, another dimension. The loose threads lead us into ever more exciting and interesting places. Your stories are marvelous, Lord. And as we take the time out of our busy weeks to look at this particular short story, we ask that through your spirit, you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts so that we will be able to perceive as individuals and as a community how this is good news for us this morning. Good news from you. Amen. So Luke, it begins, the chapter begins, with a crowd of thousands gathering to hear Jesus preach. And in that sermon earlier in Luke chapter 12, he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, those righteous, upstanding religious do-gooders. Nothing that is covered will not be uncovered under the light of the gospel, and the surface appearance of those who seem to have all the right answers is not as it seems. So he's giving a general warning to not trust the religious authorities of the day. Where our text begins in verse 13, a voice cries out from the crowd, teacher, he shouts, and it's important to know that teacher is a formal term in first century Palestine. The man is approaching Jesus looking for a legally binding ruling in a dispute about his family inheritance. This would not have been uncommon in first century. Laws of inheritance are found in the Old Testament. Yeah, you know the chapters off by heart, right? Numbers 27, Numbers 36, Deuteronomy 21. But these texts aren't exhaustive. So there's lot, there were lots and lots of disputes that arose between families fighting about inheritance as there are today, and the, the advice in the uh, Hebrew scriptures didn't always settle the case. So what would happen would be uh, a family member would go and find a, a trusted and respected authority, and that trusted and respected authority would make the ruling, and then everyone would agree to live by it, right? In the absence of a big judicial court system like we have, this is how they resolve their disputes. So when he says teacher, what he's looking for is that binding ruling. Now, Jesus had been preaching 
about how his followers had to remain steadfast in the face of persecution. And all of a sudden, this dude shows up and decides that his issue is much more important than what Jesus is talking about. Effectively, he's interrupting an event attended by a multitude to get his brother to hand over his dead dad's property. Perhaps the sheer audacity of this man's self-importance riles Jesus because his response seems a little dismissive. Jesus quotes Exodus chapter 2. He says, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then what happens perplexes me. It took me a long time to figure out what Jesus does next. Instead of going back to the topic at hand, which was remaining steadfast in the faith and about the dangers of external religiosity, or instead of moving forward and answering the man, Jesus begins an entirely different branch of discussion. He says, the land of a rich man produced abundantly. What are we to make of this strange setup? I want you to keep your Bibles open there on 1045 so that you can track along with me. In verse 15, we're encouraged to take care, to be on guard against all kinds of greed. And then the parable begins in verse 16 with a story about a rich man. He was a farmer, and he had, at this time, a very large harvest. In verse 17, the farmer ponders the problem of what to do with all the crops that he has now that his barns are already full. The text literally says, in the Greek, that he debated with himself. The course of action he determines is an excellent piece of economic stewardship. He says, I'm going to pull down my barns and build larger ones. We see that in verse 18. Then he'll have space for all of his grain and all of his goods, the text says, which suggests maybe that he has a whole bunch of different enterprises, not just this farm. Now, I call this excellent economic stewardship because his plan doesn't involve reducing in any way the efficiency of his current business. I am a suburban boy. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you plant the seeds in the soil and then the sun shines and the rain falls and the harvest appears sometime in August and September and then you harvest that and yield it and put it away into the, into the barns. So if you build more barns, you take up the space that you could have been using to plant seeds. You reduce your long-term efficiency. That's not what he's doing. He's going to tear down the barns he currently has and just build bigger ones where they were, meaning that he still has as much space as he had before for planting and harvesting massive crops. By upgrading the barns, he maintains his ability to produce abundantly, and he adds a guard against market fluctuation. And this is really important for to start paying attention to what's hidden between these very sparse lines. A quick lesson in economics might be appropriate here. He's had a bumper harvest. Presumably, everyone else has had a bumper harvest as well. So if you have a, a steady demand, which is the amount of bread people want to eat, and you have an increase in supply, what happens to price? It drops. So ironically, the fact that everybody's had a bumper harvest might not be very good news if you want to build a farming empire. But when he builds this barn, he's able to store away the excess, the surplus, and maybe not next year, or maybe not the year after that, but eventually a year is going to come when there's not going to be a good harvest. Supply is going to drop. Demand is going to stay the same. What's going to happen to the prices? They'll rise. And he's ready to make a killing. In today's terms, this man has cornered the market. And it's important to recognize that in the first century in Palestine, a bad harvest could bankrupt you. And then what happens? He gets to buy up all the property. This man not only has set himself up for this year, but he's set himself up in a wonderful position to become the landlord for the entire region. This isn't just a guy who's pretty good at farming. This is a guy who's very good at business. If this person was sitting beside you this morning, you would want to invest in what he was doing because this guy knows how to make money. Enter this man into Entrepreneur of the Year. Get him to give lectures to the Irish Farmers Association about how to make the most of their land. Maybe even get him to run for the county council. This is a guy, this is an upstanding guy that you would want to have, Sam and the elders would want to have him in this congregation. In verse 19, we see that he is very pleased with himself. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And this is very interesting, 
Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke has noted that villainous characters have little dialogues with themselves. The Pharisees, as, as Luke depicts them in the Gospels, are always thinking to themselves, debating with themselves. Luke is telling you that this man is just like the people Jesus was warning you about. Martin Luther had a shorthand definition of sin. He says it is the force that curves us in on ourselves. And here we have this farmer who's having a conversation with himself, himself alone. He doesn't consult his family. He doesn't talk to his friends, his neighbours, or in the language of today, his stakeholders. He is, to use a term rich in economic history, he is alienated. Eating, drinking, being merry, this is good advice that we find in the Bible. Solomon gives us this advice in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, where he says he commends the enjoyment of life. Quoting the prophet Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 15, you might get to it if the term is long enough, Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the afterlife, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. We, could be, we would be making a desperate mistake if we interpreted this passage in Luke 12 so that the rich farmer is condemned because he wanted to enjoy fine wine, fine feasts, and fine times. If you want proof of that, just consider that Jesus' first miracle was to produce 500 liters of the finest wine ever drunk. And he did that when the party was already three or four days in process. The vision that Jesus gives us is for his victory at the end is a grand feast. So eating, drinking, and being merry, are, they're some of the great joys in our lives, and they are to be celebrated, and Christianity is in favor of that. But in Jesus' story, God says to the farmer, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. This very night that he has secured finance and finalized the blueprints and appointed a project manager, that very night he dies. He is not a fool because he wanted to eat and drink and be merry. He's a fool because he never got the chance to eat and drink and be merry. He was given just so many days on this earth, like all of us, and he squandered his, earning more and more, which he kept to himself and hoarded away. He didn't enjoy it, and crucially, he didn't share it with anyone. Let me be very clear. Fool is a technical term in the Bible. In Psalm 14, we read, the fool is one who says in his heart there is no God. The rich man is a fool because he is living without reference to God, and specifically to God as the source of all of our provision. God is the one who makes the rain fall on the good and the bad, the faithful and the faithless. And even though I grew up in Leeksup, I, knew that that, I know that that rain is needed for the harvest to occur. So let's return to the beginning. The rich farmer is a fool because he spends his life living as if he is the only person in the universe. He gives nothing to no one. He hoards it for himself, and he never gets to enjoy it. His philosophy is a failure. It's a literal dead end. He's a fool because he lives in his imagined fortress of solitude, surrounded by a community that needs his help, and he ignores them. He is a fool because when he stands before the Lord, he will have no one to vouch for him. He will have fed no hungry person. He will have clothed no naked person. Now let's go back to verse 13. The young man has interrupted proceedings and he's asked for Jesus to do some pro bono legal work. Give me my righteous share of the inheritance, he shouts. It looks awkward when Jesus responds with a story that at first glance has absolutely nothing to do with inheritance. But that reading is too superficial. In reality, what Jesus has done from verse 15 is answered that man's request with surgical precision. And Jesus' teaching to that man has a searing relevance for us today. The rich farmer, as I've shown you, was wise in all the ways of economics, but he was declared a fool because of how he squandered the good things he had been given. He squandered it on selfish desire. He's a fool even though he was a success. He was wise, he was prudent. So how much more foolish are we who aren't particular successes? Those of us in the congregation who count ourselves among the squeezed middle, to use the language of today, we don't get to make extravagant investments or watch our massive harvests accumulate. And yet, if we're being honest with ourselves, we squander our short time on earth here with the same sorts of habits and thoughts and desires and practices as the rich fool. 
Jesus warns about greed and responds with this story because he sees that the young man's heart is as committed to the godless pursuit of his own self-interest as the rich farmer. But at least the farmer was able to make a mint. You and I, we exhaust ourselves breaking our back for bosses and juggling, juggling multiple jobs just to make ends meet. But our internal conversations are often as famished and as impoverished as the rich fools. Just like him, we think if we could only have a little more, then we'd be secure. Just like him, the answer to the question, what is enough, is always more. We say tomorrow we'll eat, drink and be merry. Today we work. This is everyday atheism. This sucks the living joy out of our lives and it leaves our souls damned because it's curved in on itself. We're not thinking about the others. We are the wealthiest people in all of history. On a planetary scale, every single person in this room is part of the 1%. You are wealthier than people a century ago could ever possibly have imagined. And yet none of you would declare yourselves rich, I presume, if we asked. Barely a handful of us would say that we're content. I speak for myself, I speak for you, we're all restless. Don't hear me say that poverty isn't real. I work for the Center for Faith and Justice, I'm not ignorant of the dire need that many face, but many more in Ireland are living tragically impoverished lives in the midst of material plenty because we have not opened our eyes to see the abundance that has already been given to us. We are much more terrified of what could be taken from us than we are excited by what we could give. We are much more terrified of what could be taken from us than we are excited by what we could give. So to the extent that we are foolish like the rich farmer, we are robbing from those who are in need. The rich fool, he sees gold in everything. He imagines everything in terms of its value. He has no peace, as we can see from how he defers enjoying the good life. Because of how he treats the gifts of the, the earth, his vast harvest of crops is joined to a vast harvest of anxieties. He is so hungry for what he doesn't yet have, he cannot enjoy what he had been presently given. And he hasn't eyes to see how he could help those who were hungry. In his dreams, he hatches plans to make money. In his rest time, he works on adding to his capital. Like the rodent we mentioned at the beginning, his vast stores of wealth are never used for the good that they create. Instead, he dies buried under their weight. And the young man from verse 13, he cannot have peace with his family. He's running the risk of being similarly preoccupied. The only thing more pathetic and pitiable than a rich fool who dies the very night he thinks he can start enjoying himself is a poor fool who wishes he was the rich dude. A friend, when they heard that I was preaching on this passage, they groaned in dismay. We need something refreshing, they said to me. Preaching about money is seen as legalistic, as judgmental, as presumptuous. Who the hell does he think he is coming and telling us about our wallets? I can understand that reaction. But from where I'm standing, I don't see congregations who desperately need refreshment because their preachers are being too hard on them. But because work is. We're killing ourselves to make ends meet. And those things that we prepare in our workplaces, in our offices, in our factories, who enjoys them? Anonymous millionaires and billionaires living in Dubai and San Francisco, in Dawkey and Monaco. <laughs> While we struggle to pay the 2,950 euro rent on a one-bedroom apartment with a shared bathroom somewhere out in Step Aside. <laughs> the gospel is good news. Jesus invites us, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And today he is offering you rest from your hunger for more. Your refusal to really ask, what is enough for me? Your blindness to see the joy and the merriment that can only be found through generosity. The rich fool hoarded his treasure at the expense of the poor. Jesus gave away his treasure for the sake of the poor. Jesus was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be hoarded. Instead, he emptied himself of everything, making himself our servant, becoming like us in every way. The fool, he lives isolated in his own fantasy of security. The Lord moves into the neighborhood, and for the sake of solidarity with you and me, he puts his life on the line. Our hearts are restless 
until they find their rest with this Lord. This morning, you have to consider whether your heart is restless because you have invested it in things that are not good enough for it. You've invested it in work and success and money, wealth, the never-ending burden of wanting more. The rich farmer was a fool because he stored up treasure for himself. How much more foolish, my friends, are we who live the same way but don't even have the consolation of great wealth? Jesus exchanged heaven for the cross so that we who are curved in on ourselves could be transformed, could be liberated, could be saved. Generosity is not a burden that he places on us. It is an honor that he invites us into. Be rich towards God by being generous towards your neighbor, and there you will find refreshment, you will find enjoyment, and you will find life. Let us pray. Lord, your good news is profoundly countercultural. It subverts all of the, the gospels of the world, which seek to win our hearts' affections and approval. These are hard messages that you have embedded inside these divine yarns we call parables. We pray that as we reflect over the coming week on the story of the rich fool, we can see how it is good news for us. We can see how it is a dead end to accumulate and store up in the hope of security, in the hope of being generous some other time. May we use our time wisely here. May we love you and love others. Amen. And really appropriately, we now follow our sermon <laughs> with the offering, <laughs> uh, which I didn't design. Uh, more seriously, the offering is a continuation of our worship. This is exactly what I've been preaching about. Uh, we, we sing these noble words. It's got to be backed up by wonderful action. And the offering not only supports the ministry here in Adelaide Road, but across Ireland, lots of struggling churches need our support. And more than that, the Presbyterian churches that work across the globe. That's what the offering does. It's, it's not an interlude in our service. It's at the heart of it. Um, if you're a visitor, feel free to let the plate pass. But if you're a member, feel free to continue your act of worship. And the song that we're going to be playing along with is Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord, through these gifts, may your kingdom advance and may our hearts be more securely located in the eternal goodness of your grace and detached from the endless rat race of mammon's devastating consumption. Amen. We continue our worship by praying for the needs of the world. We pray to you, O Lord. You hear our voice in the morning. At sunrise, we offer our prayers and wait for your answer. This morning, as we are gathered to praise you, our hearts are full of concerns for the world, for our neighbours, for ourselves. We bring them to you now. We begin by thanking you for the long life of Thomas Edge. We thank you that he is safe in your hands, as he has always been. In the aftermath of his passing, we pray that you will bring comfort and joy to his family and friends as they struggle with the loss. May he rest in peace and rise in glory, Lord. This week, across Dublin, across Ireland, the news was filled, perhaps unusually, with violent crimes. Crimes, Lord, that especially targeted women. We pray, perhaps it's always been this way, but regardless, Lord, we pray for the end of this intense violence that occurs on our streets. Whether it's gang warfare or whether it's domestic violence, whatever form it takes, whatever sociological explanations we have for it, Lord, in each and every instance, it is a tragedy for the victim and the victimizer. And Lord, each and every act of violence ripples out in cascading consequences. There's generational memory at work there, Lord. There's all kinds of profound and devastating effects. So we pray for those who have been the victims of such violence, that you might bring them true and profound healing. And we pray for those who are caught up in committing such acts of violence, that they might like this um, safe house in Brazil, that they might 
they might be interrupted in their path by people who can show them the way to life, away from violence, away from harm, towards repentance and salvation. And Lord, on a bigger scale, we are now very rapidly approaching the day when our neighbours in the United Kingdom leave the European Union. We pray for those who live in England and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland that they would be guided by wise leadership over the coming weeks and months. That the decisions that would be made would be prudent and that would have the people, especially those who are poorest and most vulnerable, at the heart of uh, their rationale and their calculus. We are not experts, we are not at the table listening to ne the negotiations, but all the signs are that things are not going to go well. And Lord, we pray that there would be a softening of these impacts, that uh, if it is a hard Brexit, that it would not be hard on the poorest and most vulnerable. Lord, give us wise leadership. And Lord, we take a moment to bring our own personal concerns to you. This uh, congregation has already mentioned Anne. We, we pray again for her recovery. And Lord, we take a moment to bring our own concerns before you, Lord. Gracious God, accept all these prayers offered in Jesus' name and give us now the strength to wait patiently for your answer and to live faithfully in response to your call. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is Holy Spirit, Living Breath of God. Welcoming me here this morning. Um, if, like me, you're able to stay around for a little while, we're going to have tea and coffee, I think, downstairs. And should you need it, uh, there's going to be prayer available right up here, confidential prayer for any pastoral concerns. But we'll close our worship with the benediction, which is a good word that we say to one another. So let us say it together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you very much.